0: You'll remember as we opened up uh, Ephesians, I, I told you that Ephesians one thirteen through 14 is one sentence. And so the whole thing is laid out in three movements. And so you have 3 through 6, 7 through 10, 11 through 14. And so the plan of the Father was the substance of last week. And so the basic takeaway is, because of God, what he's done in planning to bring about salvation in you, that before the foundation of the world, that he chose us, as adopted his son, he, he planned that we 'd be adopted as sons. he worked this amazing work of salvation for us, and he had all this stuff worked out and What this does in us is it, what it should do in us is do, it 's not create inquisitiveness and, and we want to sit down and really just you know get this out get the institutes out and get some other work out and we 're pouring over and trying to figure out how this works, but what the text reports is that we reflect upon these things we worship God, and so three through six, it starts with this idea that blessed be God. God is to be praised because he's done something amazing for you you couldn't do for yourself. He enacted a plan to bring about salvation for you. This is what God did for you. He set and established a plan to bring you into his family, to adopt you as sons. He had all of this stuff work out for you. You couldn't do that. We get to chapter two. It says we were dead in our trespasses, I've been to a number of funerals. I've never seen a dead person stand up and say, you guys are messing my funeral up. Let me do this right. That's what we were spiritually. We were dead, and he comes in, and he makes us alive in Christ. We pick up in verse seven. and If we're not careful, we too... If we're not careful in this, we can divorce it from what precedes it, and we completely miss the picture. Still on this idea that God is to be praised, and in fact, it's the whole thing, it ends in 14, back to the idea of his being praised, but we pick it up in 6. Let's read 6, we'll read 6 through 10, and then we'll walk through this together. Verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace, God is to be praised, with which he blessed us in the beloved. God blessed us in Jesus with his grace. That's what he did. Speaking of Jesus, it says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And this, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So as we open up, verse 7, we, we come into it with this understanding that it is in him we have redemption through his blood. But the him is crying out for us to fill in the blank. The him, you, you read this, and, and maybe you're like me, and, and a lot of times I'm reading, and I'm just taking the, the relative pronoun, and I just insert so insert Christ, and I move on, and I read it, and I don't come back to it. I don't stop. To let it really sink in, the gravity of all that he is saying there. See, the gravity of all that he is saying there is that the beloved, the son, the one whom he has always been, the eternal son, the beloved of God, that is where our redemption is. That's where our hope is. That's where our trust is. And if we miss this, if you don't get the enormity of, If you look at it and say, man, I know the I know the Christian story, I know how this breaks down, I know Jesus died on a cross. But if you if you don't catch the fact that this is God describing his son, saying his son is the eternal beloved one. His son is the eternally beloved one. It's not that God looked around and he said, You know, Jesus is a pretty good guy, let me bring him and use him, but he is eternally beloved. In eternity past, Jesus is reckoned. he's rightly recognized as being beloved by the Father. He is still beloved by the Father today. And it is this particular Jesus. It's this Jesus. He's the one that we have redemption through his blood. How does that hit you? When you go in and you're reading this and you come across verse seven, earlier this week I read it and I try and read through the book several times in the course of the week and I try and read through the passage multiple times in the day. When I first started the week, I'm just, I'm just reading it. I'm just kind of running through the motions and then when I slow down, the gravity of it begins to hit me. Three through six gives us this, this idea that we need to worship God because of the plan that he's enacted. Seven through ten further drives home this point that he is to be worshiped and praised because the plan that he enacted, the son accomplished. And it's this son here. He is the central character in seven through ten, and we have redemption in him. Think about it. We have redemption in the Son. Does it make us feel guilty? It makes us want to worship God. This, this idea that this is what the God of the universe did for you. This is what he did for all who believe in his name. He extends to you redemption and he does it through the beloved. Through his shed blood. This is a a graphic picture painted for us in this first idea here in verse seven that we have, we currently have. It's not this tenuous idea where, you know, it it, it might be yours, you could have it. Maybe it's slipping away. Maybe it's just falling away. Maybe it's something you need to build back up. No, no. That's that's absolutely not it. We have it because God planned it. We have it because of the surety of in whom it rests. It rests in Christ. It rests in the beloved. And we are able to avail ourselves to that. We're able to make that ours because it is him that gives the power. Like, I just don't think we get that. I just don't think we let that reality sink into us. I think we read it and we say, look, that's just getting messy. That's just getting too much. I really want to let that go. God is rightly to be praised because of the plan that he's enacted. He's rightly to be praised. And he drives and convicts us that we return praise to him on the basis of the plan that Jesus puts into action. This idea of redemption that we are set free. Some of you this morning, you don't feel set free. You just you just don't feel set free. I don't know what's going on in your life. The way this passage is set up, it it is telling you that you have redemption. You have freedom through his blood. But we have this nasty habit that we we, we recognize as we read through in Romans and we read through in chapter 2 in Ephesians that we were dead in our sin and our trespasses. Right? We get that. And we recognize that Christ made us alive, that he set us free, that he invigorated us, that he did something internally in us. But we look for things to become enslaved to again. We look to our former way of life, we look to guilt, we look to relationships, we look to frustrations, we look at all of our failures and we say these are the things that are tying me down. We find things to enslave us. What is it about us that does that? When we fully understand who God is, or as much as we can, and we surrender everything to him, and you get over the fact that that you're going to sin, and, and, and to a certain degree, you quit beating yourself up over this, and so you quit holding on to it and say, "I really shouldn't struggle with these things, but I do, and because I do, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm not going to have fellowship with other people anymore. I'm going to stay here in my room, listen to podcasts, until I get this thing figured out. You're not going to get there. You're quite simply not going to get there. And If you quit coming to church until you figure out the sin problems in your life and you work all these things out, you're going to be gone a long time. And there's some people on the pews that used to sit beside that are pretty excited because they didn't particularly care for you. And some of you are laughing and you're saying, you're right, I didn't care for them. I'm super glad they're gone. It's a difficult thing, but this is what a part of what church is, is us coming together and recognizing that none of us have it all worked out. God has it all worked out. Jesus worked it all out for us. We need to fully drink that in. We need to fully take that in. We have redemption through his blood. This paints this amazing picture. Not that God just neatly did away with sin, but he allowed the beloved to be stretched out on a cross, to be nailed to a cross, to have his blood poured out. The taking care of sin, it came with a price. It came with an incredibly high price. When we find out that this redemption through his blood, it is the forgiveness of our trespasses. To say sin is such a neat thing, right? Neat is untidy. tidy. Like, and so we deal in this, this idea of kind of this ubiquitous sin that, hey, hey, uh, Justin, you have sin in your life? And Shannon's like, oh, he's got sin in his life. Valerie, you got sin in your life? She's like, are you really asking me this, you? Where's the mirror? You know, et tu, brute? Kind of this idea that like, we're very comfortable with this. We shouldn't be, but we are, because we say, you know, I've got sin in my life, but, but to really boil it down and go after sins that are just, they're competing for our affections, they're competing in our heart, that's radically different, that's radically difficult. And so we, we, we set hierarchies of sins that we're more comfortable dealing with in church. And you've got some going through your head right now and, and you're just praying, dear God, please don't let him say watching college football is a sin. If you root for LSU, it absolutely is. You know it is. <laughs> Nobody should spell go with an E, an A, and a U. <laughs> things like pride, things like gluttony, pornography. And these are things that make us incredibly uncomfortable to talk about in mixed company. That make us incredibly uncomfortable just to get out there. We don't want people to know that we struggle with these things. In fact, we'd really rather imagine that we go to a church filled with people who struggle with things like, I don't know, slothfulness. Because <laughs> that's a little bit, you know, you think of you know, dopey or you think of one of the, the, the dwarves of having, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's kind of sleepy all the time, slothfulness. We start talking about, about I'm just going to look down, we start talking about gluttony. You're like, he looked right at me when he said that. You're not right there lust. All these things that are internal. And it gets decidedly uncomfortable. Some of you, you struggle with, with these things and, and you don't feel like you can open up to anybody around you because you're terrified that somebody will find out you're absolutely not perfect. Friend, we know you're not perfect. None of us are. And the shed blood of Jesus, it covers those trespasses. That's what we read here. It's in Jesus, not in your ability to look perfect. It's in Jesus, not your ability to fool everybody into thinking you got everything right. It is in Jesus, not the car you drive, not the house you live in, not the family that you walk into church with. It is in Jesus, not your past. It is in your present. And where is it found? It's in Jesus, that's where our redemption is. It's not our ability to fix things, to make things right. It is firmly in him through his blood, that we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Do you get this? Do you hear this? But do you believe it? You have 100% complete forgiveness of your trespasses in Jesus. And this God, he's worthy to be praised because because of what he has done. He set a plan and we praise him. He sent Jesus for our redemption through his blood, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses, us doing wrong things, and we praise him. We cry, we raise our hands, we fall on the ground. Our worship isn't neat and orderly, it is ugly. And we praise him. Because this good God sent his beloved son to radically change dead people and make us alive in him. Now look here, the last bit of seven tells us that he did all of this according to the riches of his grace. We find out that God has grace inexhaustible. He's got grace without limit. He's got grace in abundant supply. He has an inexhaustible amount of grace, but yet for some of us, we look at our own lives and say, "Whoa, he's got good enough. He's got enough grace for my family, but he doesn't have enough grace for me. He's got enough grace for my neighbor, but he doesn't have enough grace for me." Or maybe some of you, it's the opposite problem. You say God's got enough grace for me, but not not my family that has sinned against me. God's got enough grace for me. He's got enough forgiveness for me. But he doesn't for people that hold different opinions, that live different lifestyles. For me. God's got enough grace. He's got enough forgiveness for me. But he doesn't for my homosexual neighbor. God's got enough grace. He's got enough forgiveness for me. But he doesn't for, the, for all the people in prison. He doesn't for the murderers. He doesn't for the people that have tax evasion. He doesn't for the man that, that beats his wife, for the woman that beats her husband. He doesn't have grace for those people. And we set ourselves up is the dispensers of God's grace. And we can't be there. That is not a, a role designated, designed, allotted for us to serve. God has grace and abundant supply, and it is through the measure and the riches of that grace that He pours out forgiveness on us, redemption on us. And we read. In verse 8, it is this grace that he lavished upon us. I've been, I spent a considerable amount of time this week trying to figure out what that looked like. What does it look to have, like to have this grace lavished upon us? And I came up with what Valerie told me as a rather disappointing answer. We quite simply can't figure that out what that looks like. There's no picture that adequately portrays what it is to have grace lavished out. So let me come at it from this direction. When I was uh, a a child, we'll say four or five because that makes this whole story seem less ridiculous. When I was a child, I I was at my mom's mom's house. I'm in the bathroom and she had uh, Shelties. She had these these little dogs. It looks like a, a, a collie. It looks like Lassie, but short both ways. And so she had these little dogs and I'm in the bathroom and for whatever reason in my childlike mind, I said, I want to make her beautiful. What? You would have made the same decision. I wanted to make her beautiful, right? And so I look around in, in, in the bathroom and I can see it in my mind now. It's It's bathtub, toilet, sink, hideous tile and then assorted perfumes and powders and all this stuff, and I'm, I'm just racking my little mind, trying to figure out what to do, I land on it. Everything needs to start with toilet paper. And so I grab out toilet paper, and I begin to wrap it ar- around the dog's body, and it, on the legs, the dog moved a lot. It was, it was not a, a willing participant in this process. And so, but I'm trying to make the dog as beautiful as I can, and I get it, and as a child, I step back, and I, I mean, I'm not currently a fashion designer, but looking at my early models there, I certainly could have been one. And so um, I, I recognize that there's one thing missing. This is an outside dog. It doesn't particularly smell good. And so I take a, a, an assortment of my grandmother's perfume and begin to just... Y'all act like this is a bad idea. And so I take that, I do that, and a little bit of powder because everybody needs a little help. And uh, I get the dog, and I recognize that this dog is beautiful. I mean, rightly recognized as such. And so I unlock the bathroom door. I walk out, and I just I show my mom and my grandmother. And, you know, they were devastated. <laughs> they, just, they looked at that and thought, oh, what has he done to the dog? You know, in our best attempts at trying to describe what it looks like, that God has lavished his grace upon us, Our best attempts. It's tantamount to us dressing up a dog and trying to make it beautiful. The closest we can get still pales in comparison with what true beauty and a true understanding of this is. About as close as I came to making that dog beautiful is about as close as we can get to really understanding what it looks like that he lavished grace upon us. It's truly amazing. It's truly fantastic. And and we recognize that, that God did this. He lavished all this grace upon us and all wisdom and insight that God set about to do this. He set about to lavish grace upon us, to pour out all these things on us, and he put the full measure of the wisdom and insight of the Godhead together. And he planned perfectly for us in this. And he poured it out to a perfect degree. So it goes in every crease and crevice of our lives. It goes into all those hidden sins, all that pride that we seek to hold back and keep people from seeing. It goes into each and every facet of our life. And it is all wisdom and insight that he has poured it out. This God is is rightly to be praised this God who planned this God who sent his son and now he is pouring out grace on us he is rightly to be praised look at verse 9 it tells us that he is making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose a couple of weeks ago when Nathan was here he described this idea of what a mystery is it's not something unknown to be discovered but it is something previously unknown disclosed to initiates. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are considered an initiate. You are a Christian in as much as you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And so the mystery of his will has been made known to you. And the way that Paul is using it here, the mystery of his will has been made known to you. And We find out that all of that is according to his plan according to his purpose. And where does he establish it? He establishes it to be set forth in Christ. When God was planning and God was establishing and God was ordering things in 3 through 6, in verse 4, it says, He chose us in Him in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless. Verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ for what? According to His good purpose or according to the purpose of His will. So we find out, too, that when he set these things forth in Christ, he did it according to his purpose. There's a plan for the fullness of time. Now look at this. Look at this. He is going to unite all things in him. All things will be united in Christ, those things in heaven and those things on earth. And what, what's he getting at here? Recognize that when you came to know Christ, when you surrendered your will, you cried out to God for salvation, you cried out to God for forgiveness, you confessed your sins before him, when he made you spiritually alive, when he did these things to you, you were united in him. You found purpose in him. You recognize that all purposes, or you should have recognized that all purpose in your life is ultimately only understood in as much as it lines up in Christ. And so there's not God's will for my life and, and Matt's will for my life, but there's one singular point and purpose. That all things that we seek to do are found in submission to what would he have us do? He would have us make much of him. God would have us be found glorifying him. And so when Chase goes into work tomorrow morning, the question that should be before him isn't how can I do well for my firm, but how can I do well for Jesus today? And if you stay home and you're raising your children, the question before you isn't how can I raise my children and not to be serial killers, although that's a good thing. You should look at that. But the question is how can I glorify God in the way that I raise my children? How can I glorify God before How can I show them what it is to see God glorified in a mom or a dad who stays home with the kids as a retired person? It shouldn't be, I wonder how many rounds of golf I can get in this week. They told me that 21 is impossible, but dad it, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna get in 22, I'm gonna show those boys straight. Man, if that's who you are, if that's what you're doing, find out, recognize that there is so much more to life than self-indulgence. In this life, we were designed, we were purposed, we were set out to glorify God. And from the moment he revealed his will to you and he caused you to believe you surrendered yourself to him, he has rightly owned you. You were transferred from the dominion of darkness and death, being enslaved to sin, and the Bible tells us that we are slaves now to righteousness. And he is bringing all things. God is bringing all things to be found in submission, uniting all things in Christ. Now look at this. Christ is the beginning. Flip over to Hebrews. It's to the right if you're looking for it. Hebrews opens up and it says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I think this is what happened in the past. Verse two, it says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God speaks through Jesus. Look at this. He says, whom he appointed the heir of all things. All things rightly come back to Jesus. And we find out this amazing flip side of it. He is the heir of all things, but he is also the agent that God chose to create with. He's the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. You rightly belong to Jesus. When you come to know him in salvation... You who were once far off and alienated have now found home and rest in Jesus. You who were once far off and enslaved to the trappings of your sin. You who once were far off prior to redemption. You had a shackle around your neck, a shackle around each one of your arms, and shackles around each one of your feet. And in redemption and salvation, God sent his son and he went and he freed you from each one of these shackles so that you might be free to him, free to surrender who you are to him. Not free to live how you choose, but free to offer submission to him. This is what he did. He united you in him. This is the cosmic change that God affects in each and every person who submits themselves to him. He takes an enslaved person, a spiritually blind person. And he awakens their mind to slavery. Imagine finding a slave. Finding somebody who's caught up in the Atlantic slave trade and you go to them in, in, in the, the hull of the boat and they are laying there in their filth in the filth of others, and they've been tossed to and fro in the many weeks of this arduous trip, and they've got dead bodies that are being carried out all the time. And you go to this person, and you walk down to them, and you say, friend, do you know that you are a slave? And you hear the most unbelievable response. They say, slave, not me. Imprisoned, you say. Where? Of such is the plight of the lost person. Lost person doesn't recognize their slavery. They look at all those things around them and they suppose it to be evidence of freedom. They look at God, they hear the story of the gospel and they say, friend, that sounds like Slavery. Look at what the text tells us. God is making known the mystery of his will. The reason that you are a Christian, if you have submitted your life to Jesus Christ, isn't because you sat down with a concordance in a Bible and you just you willed this thing to happen. You willed this thing to happen when you said, I'm going to find him I'm going to be a Christian by the end of the day. You see, that's not how it went for you. This God revealed himself to you. He showed his plan to you. He showed his son to you. And he wrought redemption for you in Jesus' blood. So for the non-believer, you hear this. And it produces a couple of things for some of you. Some of you look at it and you just completely disbelieve it. You say, This is good for you, but not for me. You just said, Matt, I I just don't believe. My prayer for you is that God would make this truth, that he would open your eyes, that he would reveal to you the slavery that you are in, that you are locked in slavery to sin, that he would set you free so that you might enjoy what it is to be a slave to righteousness. Some of you hear this. God has awakened your eyes, and and you see the truth of this, but you don't want to surrender who you are to him. You know, the truth is some of you as Christians, you are so happy to receive the gift of salvation. But some of you, sadly, from the moment that you declared faith in Jesus Christ, from the moment he saved you, you've been working to re-enslave yourself. through giving yourself to workspace righteousness and trying to do good things so that people see that and they say, what a good person Carol is. What a good person she is. What a good person Joe is. See, God extends to your righteousness. This amazing thing is taking place in this verse. The God of the universe sent his son His beloved Son, to extend to us, to produce in us, to bring about for us redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, and we praise him for that. This this good God who planned all these things, he lavished upon us the riches of his graces and all wisdom and insight, and we praise him for that. This good God, the creator of all things, has made known to us the mystery of his will and calls us to walk and live in the reality of that and we praise him for that. This good God, according to his purpose, has set forth in Christ that in the fullness of time he would unite all things in him. Each and every man, woman, and child in here that cries out that Christ is their savior, it has been made known to you, you have been united with him, he is bringing all things in your life into subjection. And the beautiful truth as we read in Philippians 2 is we find out that each and every man, woman, and child, regardless of whether or not you choose for Jesus in this life, everyone will kneel before Jesus. In Philippians, and this is how we'll close. In Philippians, when all things are finally united, when all things finally find their place, things in heaven, those things in the material realm, things here on earth, things in heaven, both the spiritual and material realm, when all of those things finally find their culmination in Christ, this is what we read. Therefore, verse nine of chapter two in Philippians, therefore God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? When all things find their home and place and purpose in Jesus, what it does is produce praise and worship and adoration on our part. Are you worshiping Jesus for what he has done for you? Does the life you live before Jesus in the fellowship of the saints, so in the church, does it look Like you're praising God for what he's done for you. Some of you have never thought through that. This week as we go about it, what would your life look like if you praised God on the basis of what he did for you in Jesus each minute of every day? Let me pray for us.